electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Happy Friday. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Deirdre Bosa and Julia Borston. Carl's got the morning off. Today, Facebook's quest, love. Mark Zuckerberg's talks about the holy grail of augmented and virtual reality. Then, a premier player, Adobe CEO Shantanu Narayan, in an earnings exclusive, is next. And later, LeBron partner and media mogul Maverick Carter in yet another Tech Check exclusive. But we're going to start with stocks as the Dow drops around 500 points this morning. Tech is mostly holding up the Nasdaq down about six tenths of one percent. Mike Santoli joins us now. Mike, I say that uh, the Nasdaq's holding on, but it is just turned negative on the week as we speak. Right. So it's outperforming, but it's not exactly uh, really lending pure support to the overall index. It's honestly it's a moderately changed stance by the S by the Federal Reserve colliding with very high conviction, crowded positioning in reflation trades, in the overheating uh, trade in the economy. You can actually see it here, how the year has gone uh, in the Dow Industrials against the NASDAQ 100. The Dow opened up this big lead against the NDX, which, of course, is mostly FANG plus semis. Uh, and now it's given it all up. Largely, it's because uh, you had all of these people crowded into this idea that inflation was going to be the near-term risk, the market, the economy was going to run hot, the Fed was going to allow it to do that. And I see what What's gone on this week is a lot more about kind of people getting challenged in those positions as opposed to really the overall macro picture changing very much. But you can see there was a lot of money dedicated to these bets uh, for something that was anti-growth, pro-cyclical. And it's getting unwound to a degree right now, as you see, neck and neck for the year to date. Yeah, so, Mike, as we sort through sort of (laughs) different rhetorics from different Fed members, where do we go from here? I know, too, we always look at these sort of high growth names that held up and really led the way last year. And we're seeing a lot of them actually in the green this morning. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, I mean, basically, you had enough members of the Federal Reserve policymaking committee expressing some concern about inflation, which made it seem like the Fed's new framework of letting inflation really run for a while maybe uh, did not have full support. That was basically your monetary policy excuse for what's gone on this week. But in practice, what's happened is longer term bond yields have collapsed because everyone was betting on longer term yields going up with inflation, whereas shorter term yields have gone up because maybe the Fed's going to raise overnight rates a little bit more. Well, tech stocks, large cap growth stocks have been much more correlated with the long term yields, with longer duration assets. That's why they've got a net bid this week, uh, even if it isn't in an absolute sense, even if it doesn't mean they're going to lead the way the way they did last year. That's the kind of toggle that the the market is uh, is operating with right now. Well, thanks so much for that. We're going to dive into one of those tech stocks, Facebook. Uh, new this morning, Morgan Stanley calls the stock its top pick in social media. It says there's still 30% upside for shares with a bull case price target of $440. 
And they say it's thanks to the reopening. With social media use and engagement starting to tail off, the winner in this space will be the one that can capitalize on product innovation. And Morgan Stanley says Facebook is best positioned to do so, with Snap and Pinterest, by the way, rounding out the metal stand. Well, we heard a bit of Mark Zuckerberg's vision for innovation at the Viva Tech conference as Facebook leans further into both AR and VR, and Zuckerberg contemplates the metaverse. There are a few different directions for this technology that, that we're excited about. Um, one is virtual reality, which is what Quest 2 is. Um, and that is basically a completely immersive experience where you know, you're, you're in it and yeah, um, and, and you feel like you're in a completely different place, a completely virtual environment. Um, and then there's augmented reality, which is eventually going to take the form of, you know, a normal looking pair of glasses, which can, um, you know, put holograms in the world um, and blend the digital 3D world um, and give you a sense of presence there while, while, while kind of still being in the physical world around you. So, you know, the, the holy grail there, you know, is five years from now when we're at, you know, a future version of VivaTech together. Um, you know, if, if I can't make it to Paris, um, you'll have, you know, hologram Mark um, sitting on the couch next to you. Hologram Mark, you, you heard it from Mark Zuckerberg right there. And so we're back to glasses and it's not just social media. We've been increasingly hearing about the AR VR potential from Snap, but also Microsoft, Amazon, and of course, Google. So will Facebook lead the way when it comes to AR and VR or are investors better off putting their virtual eggs in another virtual basket? John, I'm curious what you think here. We've been talking a lot about AR and VR, but there's still this sense that it's kind of a ways off when it comes to being a really consumer facing product that has mass adoption. Yeah, there are a lot of companies working on it. Uh, you, you can't forget Apple with ARKit. The, uh, but this goes back to the whole idea in, in such a nascent market where innovation is important. You got big players working on it. This is kind of what happened with Wi-Fi, with so many of these technologies that did eventually become something from a theme earlier in the week. Does it need to be regulated? Should these companies be prevented from buying the building blocks to, uh, to, to launching these technologies? Mm -hmm. Will that help the smaller companies to innovate or will it smother innovation before it takes off, D, if that happens? Yeah, it's a good question, especially with M&A under so much more scrutiny for the likes of Facebook. You have a snap, and Julia, you brought up this point. The battle between the two in VR I find really fascinating because Snap is really working on this organically, whereas Facebook is sort of growing by M&A, although VR is one of these places that Zuckerberg can't, you can't say that they've been sort of copycatting other products because he's had his eye on it for so long. Um, another part of that Morgan Stanley note that I thought was interesting, they said that the idea that Facebook is losing relevancy among young people just isn't true. They have a survey that found that it reaches more than 70 5% of Americans, 34 years and younger. Julia, does that sort of line up with what you've seen in the space as well? Is this sort of a misconception around Facebook that people, especially young people, aren't using it as much? Well, I think it's really about Instagram and the power of Instagram, the fact that Instagram has stayed super relevant in part by taking some of these features from TikTok and Snap and making them their own, John. So, you know, Reels recently started putting ads in there. So Instagram in particular has figured out how to take these features and now is really monetizing them. Yeah, and 34, I mean, that seems young to me, but... That might be stretching it for what gets defined as young people. And under. Right, yeah, I and know, under. I know. But there's, there's a lot of under 
under 34. And, you know, yeah, for, for you're somebody right. who's got That's a, good point. a kid who's about to be a teenager and is almost as tall as me. Anyway, <laughs> meantime, Adobe in this market holding on to all-time highs, up about 2% in a falling market after reporting stronger-than-expected earnings for the second quarter and a strong guide. In a CNBC exclusive, I spoke with CEO Shantu Narayan about demand for the company's digital solutions, stability in North America coming out of the pandemic, and plans to get back in the office. Take a listen. Well, John, right through the entire pandemic, uh, the customer interest in the digital solutions was tremendous uh, because they all recognized once they dealt with the health and safety of employees that engaging with customers uh, digitally was going to be the most important aspect of how they continue to thrive as a business. And uh, underlying how Adobe operates, we have this amazing uh, process, we call it the data-driven operating model, which allows us to frankly take data from all these various uh, diverse uh, viewpoints and analyze them and understand what that means for demand, for engagement of our customers. Um, I would say the North America macroeconomic situation is still better. And I think, uh, you know, we're starting to get into a more normal post-pandemic environment. I think some of the other countries are still suffering, as we know, uh, both as a result of lockdowns and unfortunately an increase in viruses. Uh, but we would say that the small and medium business, which was perhaps impacted a little bit more last year, that's come back. The basic consumer demand uh, for all of our products just continues to be strong. And I think for enterprises, what I would say is the difference is they always had interest in our digital solutions. And right now they're saying we have to open up our purses and spend because if we don't spend, uh, we will be disadvantaged relative to the competition. So overall, I would say uh, it appears to be a more stable environment, but again, uh, driven primarily uh, by North America. Now, is any of this a pull forward in demand in the sense that in order to get out of this pandemic time period, in order to drive digital initiatives as physical begins to open up, customers are leaning in more than they ordinarily would, or is this more a new normal? Are you at the point where you can tell whether it's one or the other or something else? Adobe's always talked about the incredible addressable market opportunity that we have. It's over $140 billion uh, in terms of the addressable market. And if you look at uh, our results relative to what we had originally guided as an annual target, it's clear we're going to blow it away, John. And so I would say it actually reflects for us uh, more the tailwinds associated with each of the businesses. Uh, we do expect a little bit more of the summer seasonality as people hopefully uh, in this new normal, actually go out, spend time with family, maybe do a little bit more travel. Uh, and then we expect the seasonal strength back in Q4, which uh, for somebody like you who's followed us for a long time, that's uh, the seasonally strongest quarter. So uh, we don't think it's a pull-in of demand. We just think it's the new normal in terms of uh, how digital uh, is more mission critical across all these customer segments. Okay, now talk to me about product momentum and innovation. I noticed I happen to be an Adobe Creative Cloud customer, so a number of products updated just recently, particularly for the, the M1 Max, but, but across the board. Um, how has your productivity in engineering continued to keep pace through the pandemic, and what are your plans as that reopening happens for Adobe itself to bring people back into the office or to, to have them continue to be remote. What, what's the roadmap there? 
Well, two great questions. First, I think on the innovation roadmap, uh, as we talked about in our earnings release, uh, we're incredibly excited about uh, the amazing product innovation that people are working on, everything from Adobe Sensei and our artificial intelligence framework. Uh, you know, when you talk about Adobe Scan, 100 million downloads, a billion scans done to date. So mobile has clearly been a big area of focus for us. Collaboration and enabling teams to be more productive as they're working in different locations that will continue to be a theme for us. I think uh, having the cloud uh, continue to be the place where we get all of this data and we analyze it and we provide insights, uh, both on the creative side as well as on the uh, digital experience side, that'll be an area of innovation for us. Uh, I do want to highlight the new customer data platform, the real-time customer data platform, and everything that we did on the digital experience to help power digital businesses. That business is doing incredibly well, and we have reimagined things like customer journey analytics and customer experience management uh, on that uh, new platform. So the innovation roadmap is really exciting. Uh, Max, as you say, will always be uh, another one of those events where we talk a lot more about what the company is working on. And as it relates to your second question, John, and how we think about it, first, I, I will say it feels so great uh, to be able to talk to you uh, from within the office uh, right now. But in addition to that, a couple of things, we've defined a future of work. We have a framework and a blueprint for how we want to come back. We want to come back in a limited way uh, for those who've been vaccinated. To, so we do a pilot in San Jose. As you know, parts of Australia and Asia have already been open. Uh, but we continue to believe that the core focus for the company is making sure that we enable people to collaborate in a more flexible way by coming into the office uh, because it's incredibly important for us to build culture. So we're gearing up for people coming back perhaps in the September timeframe in a more flexible way. Uh, but we will also define uh, a set of workers that we call remote workers. And uh, for those remote workers, uh, I think we have a criteria because uh, frankly, it's a privilege and not an entitlement. And for them, we just want to make sure that they understand the culture of Adobe and that they have leadership roles so that they can continue to thrive. Because if we don't grow people's careers, just allowing somebody to be remote without thinking about how we can help them grow at the company, I think is short-sighted, John. There's a lot more to this conversation and you can see it. We talked about Apple's model of three days a week. We talked about Google building a, a new big campus right in Adobe's backyard and whether he likes that or not. And we talked about M&A and that full Fort Knox News interview is going to stream in the next hour. You'll find it uh, linked on TechCheck's Twitter account as well as our LinkedIn page, which you can access by scanning the QR code. There it is on your screen. I just got to point that way. Uh, we talk about uh, all those things I just mentioned. And uh, guys, great to have Sean and Ryan giving insight on a day again when the market's down, but Adobe's up. Yeah, well worth watching that entire interview, John. Meanwhile, we continue to be all over this sell-off. The Dow is down for a fifth straight day, now on pace for its biggest weekly loss of the year. NASDAQ and tech continues to hold up relatively better, though. The NASDAQ now on track for a weekly loss. We are all over the stocks to watch during this drop next. A big hour of Tech Check continues right after this. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. 
<laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. The legends are true. With overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome back. Let's get a gut check on chip stocks, specifically NVIDIA. See it there up more than 2.5%. Bank of America raising the price target to a street high $900. They say NVIDIA's superior growth profile in large unpenetrated markets, best in class profitability, and free cash flow generation make the stock their top compute pick. Not all of the semis in the green, though. AMAT, Micron, Lam Research, Intel, the worst performers in the NASDAQ. Let's dive into another stock. Roku was a huge 2020 winner, of course, and it's holding up today, but it is off 20% since its February highs. A big piece out this morning on CNBC.com going inside Roku's culture with Netflix CEO Reed Hastings and Roku CEO Anthony Wood, both on the record more than a decade ago. Roku was actually once a part of Netflix and Wood was a part-time employee. And this was all before it was spun out and Netflix sold its stake. Hastings telling CNBC, quote, obviously in hindsight, we missed a fortune. <laughs> Quoted in the piece is Daniel Leff, who is an early Roku investor and sat on the board and joins us now. Uh, Daniel, good morning and thank you for being with us. Now, the piece talks about Roku's ambitions in content now. We know it is a streaming giant, but more and more pushing into content, especially with that acquisition of Quibi. But can it really compete with the giants in this space like Netflix and Disney? What needs to happen? Well, first of all, thank you for having me today. It's a pleasure to be with you. I would say Roku has executed very well over its history and clearly has now gone into the direction of acquiring very specific and very strategic content for the platform. And as you mentioned, made the Quibi acquisition for what has been reported to be 100 million or, or less. I think as long as Roku is very careful about building that content portfolio and not alienating its great content partners, then I think it can succeed. And based on historic execution, I don't see any reason why the company can't continue to execute. And they've recently raised a significant amount of capital, and that is um, rumored to be primarily for content. How does it make that argument, Daniel? How can it be both a competitor and also a distributor? What does Roku need to tell its partners right now? Well, think about, candidly, as an analogy, what Spotify is doing uh, in terms of content. Obviously, they have great relationships with their primary content partners, the music labels. They have built a great relationship over time, but have now started producing and acquiring content, I would argue, in a very smart and strategic way. That's what Roku has to do. Obviously, Roku can't be competing directly against Netflix and Amazon Prime Video, et cetera. And their to-date content acquisitions show that. So they've acquired the Quibi catalog. That's content that is not viewable anywhere else. It's exclusive. It's a very different type of content targeting a very different demo than something like Netflix or HBO 
what have you. And I think as long as they continue along those lines, they'll maintain phenomenal relationships with their content partners. Yeah, Daniel, I think it's worth noting, though, that, you know, as they acquired Quibi, there has been this land grab for content deals for media companies in general that has pushed up the price of content. But I'm curious, as you watch Roku move further into this direction, really doubling down on this idea of ad-supported content, who do you see them competing with in that space? Is it with the Hulu or is it the, the Hulus of the world or the Peacocks of the world, or is it more with broadcast TV and cable TV. There were some interesting numbers out just yesterday from Nielsen talking about the fact that broadcast and cable TV still by far dominate the amount of time people are spent watching uh, every day. Well, Julie, as you know, uh, Roku streamed approximately 18 billion hours last quarter, and that has been on a tremendous growth trajectory. And that shouldn't change. There are a set of inexorable trends that are occurring in the TV landscape which is, a, which is, in fact, a shift away from traditional linear TV and legacy TV bundles, more towards OTT, more towards connected TV, candidly, more towards SVOD and more towards AVOD. And Roku has been uh, a winner in that space. And those trends will continue. There's also been a trend of linear TV ad dollars shifting from traditional TV to OTT and connected TVs. And that will also continue. And right now, there's still a viewing versus dollar gap, right? There's still yeah. a significant amount of dollars in linear TV advertising, but it has shifted to a multi-billion dollar level so far, and that will continue. Daniel, one of the things I find most fascinating about Roku is the sort of optionality in its model. In a way, not just like Spotify, it's kind of like a Comcast in a way, uh, you know, a, a cable provider or a retailer. They benefit from the likes of a Disney Plus trying to launch because they want placement in front of Roku's huge audience. Um, how do we see the degree to which that business model is playing out both across TVs, devices, across, you know, making money from placement from other content providers and then using unique content to shore up uh, its own kind of consumer viewer base? Well, I think you've stated it quite astutely. Obviously, Roku is a platform that's focused on bringing a wide plethora of content to consumers, having significant and great ease of use and providing it all at a reasonable fee in essence. And today with over 50 million connected homes and over 100 million viewers just in the US alone, if you're gonna launch a new OTT service, you have to launch on Roku. And there have been uh, a wide range of reported figures about the revenue that Roku has derived from its streaming partners, such as Netflix, Disney Plus, Hulu, et cetera, Peacock, that will continue. And they can, they can, Daniel. I don't think you, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Daniel, finish your thought. Oh, I don't think you mentioned the, the, the term shoulder programming, but Roku will continue to be a great platform to have a wide array of content. And around that, they will develop, they will acquire and develop shoulder programming, such as Quibi and, and some other things. Um, obviously, it's been announced the acquisition of this old house and that that catalog and a production studio and capability, et cetera. Hmm. There's passive uh, watching and then perhaps shoulder watching. I haven't heard that term. Daniel, thank you very much for being with us and your insights. We hope to talk to you again soon. My pleasure. Thank you. 
An interview with Maverick Carter is just moments away. Plus, stocks lower, yields weaker, Bitcoin's down 5%. We have some exclusive reporting on another big institution getting deeper into crypto. That's after this break. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Julia Borston with John Ford and Deirdre Bosa. Stocks still negative on the session as the Fed's Jim Bullard warns inflation is running a bit hotter than he would have expected, perhaps surprising the market with how hawkish he was on Squawk Box this morning. More on that in a moment. But first, let's get a news update with Rahel Solomon. Good morning. And as you just mentioned there, Julia, stocks are down in the down S&P are posting their biggest losses in more than a month. That's after that top Fed official said that inflationary pressures are rising more quickly than predicted. Yields on longer-term treasuries fell and short-term yields rose as traders bet that the Fed will act sooner to fight inflation. We were expecting a good year, uh, a good reopening, but this is a, a bigger year than we were expecting, um, more inflation than we were expecting. And I think it's natural that we've uh, tilted a little bit more hawkish here uh, to contain inflationary pressures. And many commodities are on the rise today. Grains are rebounding after sharp losses recently. However, lumber prices continue to fall and metals futures are mixed. And Smith & Wesson brands bucking the market decline right now. Shares are up about 13, 14 percent. That sales shot up 67 percent from last year's level. That was driven by higher gun sales. Smith & Wesson shares now trading at a five-month high. You're now up to date. Deirdre, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thanks for that. We're watching the markets. The Dow is down about 475 points. NASDAQ losses accelerating, now down about 1%. But FANG has been a bright spot in the week as we see stocks sell off. And Domchu has what's moving. They're down today, Dom, but Amazon especially outperforming ahead of Prime Day next week. Absolutely. I mean, some of these mega cap technology consumer kind of oriented uh, communication services, tech, pure tech plays are outperforming overall. If you take a look at the overall picture for the week, well, as of a few moments ago, technology was the only sector in the S&P 500 this week that was in positive territory. But like you said, some slowing momentum here in the technology has now drifted very marginally into that negative territory now. Contrast that with materials and financials. Fairly neck and neck for the two worst sectors in the overall S&P. The commodity sell-off story has a lot to do with the materials sector kind of sell-off. And financials, very much an interest rate story over the course of the past week and even over the past couple of weeks as well. So tech, materials, financials, three sectors to keep an eye on. Tech outperforming, certainly. If you dig into that trade a little bit more, you take a look at some of the actual parts of that market, that technology trade that are really outperforming. Check out cloud computing. Over the last month, it's up 11%, handily outpacing the market here. The semiconductor trade, some folks like to look at that as a kind of leading indicator for some of that technology trade. That's up about 8%, and the technology sector overall is up 6 So semiconductors and cloud computing both doing some of the heavy lifting for outperformance within that re- re- overall technology sector. And then if you take a look at elsewhere, 
stock-wise on some of the moves that we've been seeing, names in particular that have been outperforming NVIDIA over the last week. Also, Adobe, we just heard from the CEO there, of course, on this show. ServiceNow, Apple, some of these names that are kind of in the mix right now are actually the ones that are doing some of the outperformance. Apple obviously carries a lot more weight these days, NVIDIA as well, so keep an eye on those particular names. And then elsewhere, with regard to mega cap technology and communication services, Facebook and Alphabet, on a year-to-date basis, you can see Facebook up 21% and Alphabet up 37%. But I want to point out that just over the course of this past week, we have seen record highs for both, John, of these stocks. So Facebook, Alphabet, NVIDIA, Apple, certainly key to watch there in that technology trade and the outperformance driven by a lot of those types of things, John. Yeah, absolutely, Dom. Thanks. Now, Dom just said it. I'm going to double down on it. Look at the Wisdom Tree Cloud Computing ETF. Despite today's broad sell-off, that ETF still up 4% for the week, outperforming the S&P on track for its fourth positive week in five. And Maverick Carter, LeBron James' business partner. He started his career at Nike. There's an interview with him coming up on Tech Check. That's next. CNBC's Hugh Sun just broke the news. Goldman Sachs ramping up its Bitcoin trading operation, and he joins us now Hugh, what does this represent both for Goldman and for Bitcoin? Is this a bet that Bitcoin is going up or is it just uh, an acknowledgement that clients want exposure to Bitcoin and uh, that it's going to be extra tradable going forward? Hey, hey, John, nice to be with you. So it's more of the latter. It's what you just said, which is, you know, clients and we're talking about sovereign wealth. We're talking about pensions, obviously, hedge funds, family offices have been asking their investment banks You know, we want exposure. We want to play Bitcoin. And for the most part, banks have had to say, no, uh, we can't do that yet. We're looking into it and we're studying it, but we can't do it. So that begins to change, you know, now. And and it has been changing as as Goldman has started up this new crypto trading desk uh, last month. The news today is this. These are the first trades where you have Goldman, which is obviously super regulated, uh, you know, very important, very central to the economy investment bank dealing directly with a firm like Mike Novogratz's, uh, you know, crypto-centric firm, you know, which is Galaxy. And so you have basically a step towards the maturation of this asset class where you're going to have more institutional players. You know, banks, they never want to do, nobody wants to do something first at a bank. They always want to wait until somebody else does it. And in this case, it's Goldman. And once they see that it works, all the other banks will, will jump in because they've been getting the, the inbound to from their clients. And I think that's what this means. This means there's an advance uh, in the maturation of this asset class for institutional traders. So, Hugh, to that point, do you think this is going to open the floodgates? How many others will follow? And is this just going to become standard now for these big financial institutions? Well, uh, yes. So, I mean, I think a couple of things. When you have clients clamoring for something, you know, there's only so much that you could say, look, you know, we're we're not going to do this. Uh, they've reached that point. Goldman has finally, you know, opened up this crypto trading desk. You know, if you recall from the clips, they tried to do this back in 2017 and uh, ultimately had to had to shelve the plans. Here we are four years later. They're actually doing it. Um, the sense is that that now the seal has been broken, that there's going to be others who are going to be involved. And that, you know, I think the bigger you know, the ramifications of this is once you have more institutional involvement, you have big institutions institutional players, what is that going to do to the volatility of Bitcoin? And so I think, you know, the argument is that you have so many of these retail players who get ludicrous 100x 
you know, amounts of leverage, uh, you know, pushing this market. And, 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 and you know, so if you, you see these huge uh, downdraft days that you've had in crypto, uh, and if you have more institutional players, they're going to be involved both long and short. They're going to they're going to have views that are different from the retail players. And that's going to ultimately start to mature the asset class where it's going to be not as volatile as it has been historically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Hugh, we may already be seeing that. I mean, I feel like a few months ago on a kind of headline like this, we'd see Bitcoin surge. But today still down about three and a quarter of a percent on the session. Uh, thanks for that. Meanwhile, we are watching a new cryptocurrency that is climbing in popularity. Kate Rooney has the details for us. And Kate, with most Cryptocurrencies that sort of storm onto the scene as this one has, there's some controversy around it. And uh, this is not short of that. That's right. There's been plenty of controversy and it's gotten a lot more popular recently. Let's talk about Tether. So this cryptocurrency has quietly risen to the third largest in the world by market cap. Tether saw more transfer volume than PayPal and Zelle in the first quarter. That's according to new research from Needham. And on an average day, Tether sees more trading volume than Bitcoin or Ethereum. Unlike Bitcoin, though, its price hasn't changed. Tether was the first of what's known as a stable coin. Its price is pegged or tethered to that of the dollar. So one Tether equals one dollar, one to one there. But Tether is not 100 percent backed by U.S. dollars in a bank account. It's made up mostly of dollar-like assets, including short-term debt. And according to J.P. Morgan, it is now the seventh largest holder of commercial paper in the world. There's been some controversy around that. Like you mentioned, Deirdre, New York's attorney general accused Tether and its creator of lying about those reserves and moving hundreds of millions of dollars between companies to cover up massive losses. Tether has not responded to CNBC's request for comments, and the case was settled back in February for about $18 million. The AG ended up shutting down that cryptocurrency in New York State. Still, this is the uh, crypto of choice for traders. I've been talking to a lot of folks who use it. These are not the Goldman Sachs folks that uh, Hugh was mentioning. They trade Bitcoin on the weekends when banks really are not open and transfers can take a few days. It's often faster to go in and out of Tether than start from scratch with dollars. And it's a lot more popular for international traders who want the stability of a dollar, but they might not have a U.S. bank account. Analysts tell me Tether's rise this year is mostly due to people selling out of Bitcoin and putting money on the sidelines into Tether. It's also used in things like NFTs and cross-border payments. Dee, back to you. Okay, certainly one to watch. Thank you for breaking that down for us. We'll keep our eye on it. Coming up, take a look at Match Group. Morgan Stanley resuming coverage at overweight and a $180 price target. Shares are up about 1.5% today. They say that Match remains a top pick as they continue to see upside in the second half of the year, driven by pent-up demand for online dating. More Tech Check after a quick break. What I'm mostly worried about is how we can make sure that we can build a culture that's going to let us uh, attract and retain the people we're going to need uh, to help those 100 million Americans who tell us they want more insurance if they already have some or they'd like insurance if they don't have it and, and meeting them on their terms. And that, that comes down to using technology like we were talking about uh, so that uh, so that people can, can interact with us the way that works for them uh, and technologically enabling our agents uh, because human advice really matters. And he's not just worrying, he's doing it. That's Mass Mutual CEO Roger Crandall. Revenues up at the Fortune 100 company. I spoke to him this morning about the strong uptake for life insurance he's seeing from millennials in the pandemic and how he's using machine learning to streamline the underwriting process. And if you want to hear more, scan the code. It'll take you to our LinkedIn page for the full interview. Julia. 
Still ahead, some fake news from Blade. Literally, it's fake news. That's coming up. But first, Maverick Carter after the break. Tech Tech is back in two. Take a look at ASML holding the semiconductor stock up over 35% this year. Today, Bank of America calling it one of their top picks to benefit from rising inflation. Not helping today, though, as chip stocks are some of the worst performers in the market. Intel at the bottom of the Dow. Read more on CNBC Pro High at Tech Check. We'll be back in just a moment. It's been about a year since LeBron James and Maverick Carter's Spring Hill Company announced a $100 million investment to fuel growth across its divisions, including Spring Hill Entertainment, which produces documentaries, scripted TV shows and films, Uninterrupted, which is its platform for producing content and products around athletes, as well as the company's brand consultancy, Robot, which creates branded content for the likes of P&G and Walmart, among others. I sat down with Spring Hill's CEO, Maverick Carter. We started off the conversation with Spring Hill's first big theatrical movie, Space Jam, a new legacy which Warner Brothers will release simultaneously in theaters and on HBO Max next month. That is the future of business and streaming and how do you build, you know, I don't think the theatrical releases are going away. I think big movies like Space Jam will, con- will work theatrically. I think this movie's gonna do great theatrically, but I also think it'll do great in streaming, and I understand that's the future, and I'm totally into that. And does this mean that LeBron is gonna be looking at a career as a movie star post-basketball? Uh, you know, listen, he's one of the most talented people to ever live. He has an ability to learn and, uh, and apply. I always tell people, I can learn fast, but sometimes it takes me a while to apply. He can learn and apply literally on the fly. So I think, you know, it'd be up to him if he wants to be a movie star. Maybe maybe he'll do a couple more movies, maybe not. I don't know. I think he likes the idea of being a movie star. I honestly think the work was more than he ever expected. <laughs> In the past year especially, we've seen Netflix rise, all these different companies that are really about this direct-to-consumer experience. For you running a company that is producing content for all these platforms, do you have a preference for which kind of platform you're producing for? I don't have a preference. I think ultimately the type of content you make or are making at that time, and we make a lot of different things, documentaries, big movies, smaller movies, um, scripted shows, lots of unscripted shows. I think the content dictates where it should live and you know the platforms and the distribution places like Netflix, like Amazon, like Disney now, like, you know, uh, HBO Max, all of them, Amazon, I think I said them, there's a lot of them. Um, they are, they A, know what's best for their platforms and their places, but they're also still experimenting, right? Comcast, uh, Universal, NBC just launched Peacock, so they're experimenting and seeing what works, and we're gonna do a movie for them. You're also producing short-form content branded content for these other platforms like Instagram, YouTube. And what I think is so interesting is this is a whole part of the business that people may not know about and may not know that you're in, but your clients include Uber, include um, some of the big financial, Procter & Gamble. Nike, General Motors, Walmart, J.B. Morgan Chase, I'm sure I'm missing some. But that's part of the business that honestly, when we set up the Spring Hill company, it's, it's honestly the world I come from. I didn't, I didn't grow up in, in Hollywood. I didn't grow up wanting to make movies, wanting to make TV shows. I grew up at Nike. We as a company saw that brands were going that way. And I think it's, to my point, a year later for our company, it's went a lot faster than we, than we thought. You know, we're a content studio for 
content studio of record for Nike, working with Walmart and GM in the same way, Procter & Gamble, creating pieces of content that really tell a story of empowerment through the lens of people, talent, creators, and, and really invoke a feeling, but also at the same time as telling a story about that brand. And we've created franchises with brands. So you have mentioned so many different companies in this conversation. Which are the companies that you most want to emulate? We've been able to carve out this little lane to drive so we get a chance to see what they're all up to, see what the future, and kind of pick from all of them to build who we want to be and what we want to be and what, who we uh, want to be, but I think obviously, if you think if you look at our sports brand, Uninterrupted, it's a lot of DNA from Nike. It's a lot of how, what I, from what I learned that if you look at the Spring Hill Company in totality, it, it looks starts to look and feel a lot like Disney if you look under the hood, because we all admire what Disney did and what uh, Bob was able to do as when Iger was the CEO and bringing in Pixar and Marvel and and really keep building that content business, but also focusing on experiences and products. Right now, you're on all of these different platforms. Can you ever imagine creating your own subs subscription service, making your own channel that's direct to consumer and aggregating all your fans into one place like that? Yeah, I can see that. I mean, we're already direct to consumer with our products. You can go on uninterrupted.com and buy our products. I mean, I think absolutely we could uh i could see us in the future maybe looking at that i mean it's a long way off for us now obviously you see what the big companies do they invest a lot of money it takes a lot of money um but absolutely i could see that in the future some version of that for us in the future and really staying in our lane and keeping our space carved out you have also sort of alluded to a lot of the consolidation that's happening in this space. The tech companies are buying media companies. Everything is, is coming together. Um, and I'm wondering if you have been approached by any of these companies. I, there aren't many assets like Spring Hill out there. Could you imagine selling 20 of these? Thank you for saying there aren't many out there like us. Uh we listen we love what we're doing we serve the athletes the talent the writers directors we serve our brands like the shop more than athletes so if we had an opportunity to supercharge that or be on a platform that took that globally in an instant or in a way we would have to take a look at that absolutely juneteenth is coming up on saturday it's been about a year since the black lives matter movement do you feel like things are changing are there companies that you think have made meaningful commitments you can put black people on the board or even in high level position, but you really need black and brown people and women throughout the whole company. And you have to be very, not be afraid to be specific about it. Like these roles, we need to have black people or these roles, I wanna have a woman in this role. Because I always tell people, the thing that kept black people out and the thing that kept women out was very specific. You know, there were clubs and businesses and this job that said, a black person can't have this job, or a black person can't come to this club. So you can't be afraid in, to try and reverse that, to be specific and say, hey, this role, I want a black person. So I think things hopefully will change. I'm, I'm, I'm being a part of it, but I'm t my main message to companies are, don't just put black people at the top of your company, put them all the way through, because that's how black people don't have this feeling of being stuck. And big companies, black people feel like they get to a certain level and get stuck. You can find my whole interview with Maverick Carter, including his thoughts on in-person events, streaming sports, and commerce, uh, e-commerce, on cnbc.com slash tech tech. And John, to follow on Carter's point on diversity in corporate America, though we have seen billions of dollars committed to DEI at the big five tech giants in particular, diversity numbers have stagnated. We haven't seen a lot of progress there. Yeah, first of all, Julia, 
great interview, great get. Some controversial thoughts, some thought-provoking, uh, you know, uh, observances, uh, observations from Maverick Carter there. And you know, I, I think as a country, we, we Juneteenth in a way sort of snook up on a, a lot of people. Not sure how to celebrate it, but I, you know, I'm thinking about America at its best is about progress toward a more perfect union, D. And so how does Juneteenth fit into that? I think part of the legacy of what it represents is proclamations alone don't solve problems, right? Information is necessary, and then economic work is necessary. So as we start figuring out how to celebrate, that should probably fit in. Right. And you have to track progress. To Julia's point, I think she's referring to some numbers uh, that Fast Company published um, for today, showing sort of the progress among big tech companies. As Maverick Carter said, it can't just happen at the board or at the most senior levels. It has to happen throughout organizations. And in a year, guys, where remote work has been the norm and companies can hire outside of these tech hubs, that really hasn't happened, at least for Apple and Amazon, which have updated their 2020 numbers, Julia. Yeah, and it seems like really transparency is a key part of this. The more these companies report, the more we talk about it, the more there is the potential for change, John. Yes, yes, indeed. Now let's get a quick check on the markets as we head toward noon. All the major indices are lower. The Dow, most of all, down almost 400, more than 1%. The S&P uh, down nearly 1%. The NASDAQ in the red, but holding up uh, best of all. And with that, uh, a happy Juneteenth weekend to everyone. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba-go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.